So originally we had a very different animated feature we were going to talk about today. Yeah, one that's been stirring up a little bit of uh, controversy. Yeah, and it was because of said controversy that we ultimately decided against talking about it. Even though I think both of us still do want to see it, it's becoming hard to become an ethical consumer in today's society. It's incredibly uh, difficult. We're trying to do good. We don't really ever shop at Walmart at all. I've finally gotten Aaron to stop ordering things off of Amazon. Everything off of Amazon. How about that? Everything. Let's not order a box of cereal off Amazon. Let's just go to the grocery store and get it. (laughs) I uh, definitely um, am trying to be better about, like, eating locally and, you know, all that stuff. But it's incredibly difficult. So you've seen The Good Place, you know how hard it is for anyone to make that good decision. So we originally wanted to, before this whole controversy happened, we really wanted to go see Trolls 2 World Tour. And I know what you're saying. Did you guys really enjoy the first Trolls movie? And that's why, you sillies, we didn't even watch the first movie. Yeah, I, uh, I've i seen enough synopsis of it to know that I would not have enjoyed the movie. Yeah, we're weirdos. We're that bastion of the internet that goes to things just to support three brothers who got bit parts in a movie because they made a podcast about being in bit parts in that movie until they were made into bit parts on that movie. We, of course, refer to the McElroy brothers who made a podcast called The McElroy Brothers Will Be In Trolls 2 before any, but it was just, it was write it down, send it off into the universe, and what will be will be. And because of that, they managed to troll their way into movie jobs. Like, well, if we say it'll happen, the universe surely will make it happen. It's totally going to happen. And then it did happen. And it totally did happen. And they decided to live stream the home release with the director on Twitter and just a live tweet as they watched the movie. I'm like, well, that sounds fun too. And even, you know, the $19.99 price, you know, isn't terrible considering it's for two people. Definitely worthwhile for the price of a family. But then we started hearing about how AMC Theaters is boycotting showing any universal movies, any movies made by that studio for doing that because it kind of breaks the whole um, structure that we have set up for how movie theaters and movie studios play together. Well, and neither of us are experts in this area in the slightest. We're not. We only know about what we have seen on the internet. And uh, Isn't that how much anyone knows? (laughs) Um, We're, uh, unfortunately... We're not experts uh, to to that to that degree. We can only kind of talk the about idea. how the fact that this movie came out only on streaming and it made over a hundred million dollars its first weekend. That's true. However, the numbers for that don't seem to be at all close to the numbers the original Trolls made. And we had thought about watching it to see if it was actually better than the first one, which again we had not watched, so we had no frame of reference to speak of. And then the more we read about it, the more we saw that. The actors, in addition to the voice cast, in addition to not being consulted about releasing the film directly to streaming, also haven't been paid. Which doesn't make sense to me, because that's usually something that comes much sooner. You would think. It is an interesting idea to me, the idea of releasing a movie straight up onto streaming, and to 
especially for like the family, it makes total sense for when you've got kids that are under the age of five and don't care about going to a theater and you can control them better in your own home and you don't have to pay 80 bucks to get the whole family into seats for a movie that they aren't going to watch during a pandemic. All these things strike me as, yeah, these are all good ideas. But then at the same time, you also have the movie theater, which is built solely on the trust that the movie studio will provide them a movie that people want to come see and, and therefore they have a reason to exist. Um, you know what else is interesting to me? That we still haven't even said our uh, names yet. Well, that's Aaron. And that's Elizabeth. And, and we're, we're married, married to, to the, the idea. idea. And we were going to do a whole big episode about Trolls 2 World Tour, but we are not doing that. No, it feels like we're about to jump into that. We're going to stop cold right here and go right <laughs> back to what we actually decided we were going to talk about. Well, and, and it's a very interesting topic. Um, the reason that we're not doing it the, the, is because neither of us really have any kind of like to stand on. And we didn't really want to support a studio that is not really doing things correctly. Um, and it's really hard to support studios at all anyways. It's hard to be a reviewer at all because if you're like us, just like to watch movies to talk about them, you're paying for the ticket. And I said the same thing when we went to go see Lion King, I really live action. I really don't want to give D- Disney Studios my money for this movie because it's showing them that I would watch this and I am not watching live action remakes anymore. Or to go see Cats because we went and saw Cats. Well, Cats was never see- gonna Cats was never gonna make any money. That was pity. No, and I'm 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 almost guaranteeing fifty to seventy five percent of its uh, box office revenue was. To go see how bad it actually was. It could become a cult thing. I don't think it was nearly I bad don't think enough. It wasn't or nearly bad enough. sincere enough. Like, no. if it was, I mean, that's where we find the passion projects are the ones that get most cult status. And, and, this, and this was a passion project to an extent. But uh, going back to the trolls thing, um, we really, like, we want to watch this movie just to watch it for the boys, for the McElroy brothers. Um, but the. The, the fact of the, the whole controversy behind it, we were going to talk about it and we had our own opinions with it, but it was hard to kind of capture or, or rather to say something that someone else wouldn't say. And neither Liz or I are an uh, authority on this in any kind of sense. So we're, we're always, not... we yeah. always are, Aaron. <laughs> Let us not forget we have credentials. Yeah, that's that's another thing too. We have we're a neither, website. <laughs> neither of us are really uh, authority on much of anything. But so if we're going to we speak can... on something with no authority, let's speak on something with no authority that doesn't have a controversy swirling around it, or something that we can actually watch and not have to worry about paying the ethical dilemmas of the film <laughs> viewing process. Before we get into our topic today, you can follow us on Facebook at Marriage to the Idea. We also do our live streams Tuesday nights at 5 o'clock on our Facebook page for our Steven Universe fan chill appreciation podcast, Keep Beach City Quarantined. We had just started season two of Steven Universe, so if you want to follow along and watch with us and talk with us during the live streams, again, that's Tuesday nights at 5 We are on SoundCloud and iTunes at Married to the Idea. And if you want to support us financially, you can head to patreon.com slash married to the idea and check out the tiers and ranks. I think the thing we have up there right now was uh, the live reaction to the Artemis Fowl trailer. Yeah, that's... Oh, God, that was awful. that was another thing. We find that Artemis Fowl may follow the footsteps of Trolls 2. And I think Scoob, the newest iteration of... um, uh, Scooby Doo, the 
Blue Sky? It might be. Or Universal, one of the two. Um, the 3D animated Scooby-Doo, um, which actually didn't look terrible. It looks cute. But um, it, it's it's too modernized. Um, and it's it, it's either, with Scooby-Doo, you either have to go completely modern or completely timeless. And, and neither are a good idea. Yes, but because the Harlem Globetrotters <laughs> are so completely timeless. Yeah. The um, fact that I know what the Harlem Globetrotters is is a testament to the popularity of Scooby-Doo. Because uh, I would have never known if Scooby-Doo had... You went and saw the Harlem Globetrotters with me. We saw them at, yeah, but in I would have your never, town. but I would have never known they existed if not for Scooby-Doo. I thought Anywho. it was a joke. I thought Scooby-Doo invented them and they just said, well, I guess we can make a basketball team based off of this. No. I know. That's what I thought. They've been around for a long ass time. <laughs> so... Uh, uh, yeah, this is a it's, it's a very interesting uh, concept, uh, but yeah, go, be sure to check out our Patreon and uh, Facebook and everything like that. Um, and we try to keep everyone updated um, when we're going to do the live streams. Uh, and um, it, we do typically try to do them about five o'clock on Tuesday. So, well, today, Aaron, let's discuss a movie that bombed, that tanked, that destroyed an animation studio, and that an destroyed an legend. animation legend that yeah. brought. The idea of sci-fi 3D animation and 2D animation to a standstill, we speak, of course, of Titan AE. I watched this. I don't think I watched this in theaters, but I definitely watched this movie when I was a kid. This came out in 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, and this movie was groundbreaking to an extent because it um, was it was not one of the first movies to incorporate 3D um, and 2D, but it was one of the first movies that really try to utilize 3D at the same time as 2D. The integration of them. Yeah. You can see that in a lot of Disney films, and as, the f- well, we'll just mark the very first of many, many comparisons to Treasure Planet that was later captured in that movie two years later, the idea of deep canvas, both 2D and 3D animation, working in tandem. This idea Which, had started and was continually being rounded and stretched and perfected, as it were. You know, I about asked you, but I, I have IMDb pulled up already, so I'm what going to... What you looking for? I want to know which came out, because you said Deep Canvas, and I'm pretty sure Deep Canvas was a tool utilized before Treasure Planet. Agreed. Um, I think the idea that with Deep Canvas, with Treasure Planet, was that they... They perfected it. Was. It was. Okay. Yeah, because I'm pretty sure Deep Canvas was used in Tarzan. Yes. Because that's how they were able to get that depth in for the jungles and everything like that. Yeah, the idea behind 3D and 2D working together is a great idea because 3D is really good at building detailed and immersive backgrounds. I've always thought that. There's a reason that the ballroom scene in Beauty and the Beast looks so good is because you used it to create this sweeping camera shot that would be really difficult and time-consuming to recreate with a 2D animation. But you still need the 2D animation to anchor it, to give simple likability and characters to it. So I think that they both can work together. I think Titan AE was especially concerned with that because the idea of creating space, it... You know, Treasure Planet taught us the same thing. It's really hard to do with strictly traditional 2D animation. The use of 3D helps convey the deep emptiness and cosmic amazingness of space. So um, the synopsis of this movie, I'm trying to go quick because I always say I'm going to go quick. Do you want me to do it then? Sure. (laughs) Uh, 
Earth gets blown up in the first three minutes. It get blown up. Get blown up. It gone. Destroyed. Never let it be forgotten that Don Bluth is a dark man who likes to show dark things. However, this is his first and to date only movie, animated movie, that does not feature any singing characters. No, it is it one is. of three. Oh, what else is there? I'm sorry. Rats of Nim. My apologies. Secret, Secret of Nim. Uh, and The Land Before Time. My apologies. That's right. Uh, so there is... I always like that Don Bluth has the ability to do both. And and, and here's the thing. In, yes, he has the ability to do both. He has the ability to do both well. Mm-hmm. That's something that some directors try to do. <laughs> Tom Tom Hooper. Um, I just don't think Titan A needed to be a, a space opera with actual opera in it. Un- <laughs> I am a cosmic castaway. Although that would have been a little bit of funny. Just a little bit. But like an early 2000s musical, can you imagine how... So much. That would have been... Nickelback. Uh, apparently, um, Higher by Creed was uh, featured in the trailer. Uh, yeah, and then not anywhere at all in the movie. Heavily in the marketing, Higher. Uh, I actually do remember some trailers for this way, way back in the day. I don't. I just rem- I, And that's the thing, too. Is Well, they, you know, Disney tried to destroy them. They, uh, just like they released, uh, re-released The Little Mermaid when Anastasia came out because they wanted to bury Don Bluth. Uh, when this came out, they re-released Fantasia 2000 for a four-month run in theaters. I will say, though, that Fantasia 2000 didn't even make it in the this top ten. This was back when What's-His-Face was the CEO, yes. wasn't it? Good old um, Farquaad himself. Michael Eisner. I, good old Ike Eisner. Or not, I know his name's Daddy not of Disney Daddies, Michael Eisner. Yeah, the man is was an 80s man. He, I do love the quote, We have no obligation to make art, to make history, or to make a statement, but to make money. Uh, if we do one of these things, we will make money. So that's, you know, it's, it's a completely 80s ethos to say we don't have to make a great art, but we have to make money. And we inevitably have to do one of those things to make money. That's all I really care about. So the man, yes, would re-release his best performing movies on the same weekend that other animation directors. It was so cutthroat as if two animation studios could not exist simultaneously. Greed is good. Greed is good. Uh, so yeah, the movie, there's a re- I'm like, the more and more I learn about Michael Eisner, the more and more I'm like, he's a dick. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Like the reason, I mean, I mean, like he w- he helped helm the Disney re- Renaissance, which you know I'm forever thankful for. But he's a dick. <laughs> he, he 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 a dick. Um, like I. The, well, I mean, it's not every day that you have a movie make its cartoon villain you with well, a with a bad him and name katzenberg i mean like if you guys ever ever want to watch like a fascinating story there I, I can't remember if it was the pixar story or if it was the um uh, uh or if it was the DreamWorks. disney renaissance but the, i remember it was talking about dreamworks but like talking about what happened between uh eisner and uh katzenberg because like well Jeffrey Katzenberg wanted to do his own thing went off to make his own animation the, studio he, the reason he did is strictly because Eisner like promised him the head of the animation department for years years and years and years and then like uh I don't know if it was all on Eisner but like it was because of Eisner that Katzenberg didn't get it yeah and like he like uh Eisner said oh, blah 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 
oh, by the way, you're not. And it was like in passing, and like Katzenberg was like, are you fucking kidding me? And like, I'm going to go and rip off all your movies. Yeah, Just try and stop me. That's why we had the chain of like, Bugs Life Ants. Uh, Finding Nemo Shark Tale. Every time that. that DreamWorks stopped trying to pretend to be Disney and did its own thing, which we'll discuss in future episodes, <laughs> it did really good. It doesn't have to be Disney. Not everything has to be Disney, and Titan AE is not Disney. No, and this is this is one of those examples where like uh, an, an animation studio is not trying to be Disney, is not trying to be anything else. In fact, I would say Disney kind of copied. I mean, not Treasure Planet is not Titan AE. Or vice versa, but they're. They, I think they took a little bit of, you know, a cup. They paid will, homage a little bit. I will not doubt that for a second that the directors didn't see this movie and then incorporate ideas that they saw into it. Um, however, I will, in defense of Treasure Planet, say that uh, the two directors, uh, Musker and Clements, who did Treasure Planet. We're pitching it all the way back when Little Mermaid came out. Like they had this idea for Little Mermaid and Treasure Island in space, and they've been pitching it for years before they said before we finally gave it to them to do. I, I would, and I'm not saying that for like the story, like well, how, like with ants and bug story and all that stuff. It was more so um, uh, the visuals. There's some, yeah. there's some similar visuals to this. The viewing of space does feel similar in both these movies. Uh, like, Tom Luke like, has his particular color palette. Yeah. Because if you look at like Lilo and Stitch and his uh, and uh, What's-His-Face's view of space and Don Blue's view of space, two completely different, different ones. ones yeah. So going back to Titan A.E.'s story. Let's do um, some pros and cons. Oh, you still want me to tell a story because we got off track again because you yeah. talked about Katzenberg and Eisenberg. But, uh, I mean, Katzenberg is kind of a dick too. But So Earth gets blowed up. Um so I think Katzenberg actually helped found the Pixar. Focus. Focus. That that might be how I know that because I watched the Pixar story. So anyways, going on. Uh young blonde Dimitri from Anastasia. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's not who he is, but boy. But it look, he looks just almost like identical. Him. Um young boy, dad runs off with this spaceship that's supposed to save the planet Earth, but it gets lost out in space. Cut to fifteen years later, the young We're boy lost in, in space. space. Young boy is now a man uh, working as a salvager, a drifter. Most of the human race is extinct. The ones that do lived on these colonies made out of broken, busted up ships. And the dredge come hunting for him. The same alien beings who destroyed Earth in the first place because of what the Titan project represented. They the were, Titan of Titan AE. Well, uh, there's some beginning narration, which you know is kind of a sin in, in, in of itself. But the beginning narration says that the dredge came and attacked the human race because of what the human race could become. Yeah, with the Titan, I think. With, with the Titan. I think it was beyond what the Titan was, but the fact that they could create an entire world with one ship shows the ingenuity of human creativity. Mm -hmm. And and Kale, they kind of have these little sparks of what Kale can do. Um, he, they show that he is an invention or that he's an inventor, that he knows how to like make things work a little bit better than they are. Kind of shows his father in him, um, which is really kind of neat. It shows a kind of a more subtle connection between him and his father. Um, but it's it, it's not the best explained. I will admit there is some rushing on exposition on so, this movie. It's um, very much in the vein of Independence Day where the aliens – are just dicks, and they just want to destroy humanity. Well, they just do. 
humanity is is too powerful. It's too inventive to what what it could have become. <laughs> we are the dominant alien. Blow up Earth. <laughs> so, but the dredge do come. They blow up Earth, uh, and, and Kale it- is uh, approached by a captain to try to find the spaceship that his father was working on, mm-hmm. um, or had worked on and left Earth in. And um, begrudgingly, Kale goes to help him find the ship with him and his crew. And So much teenage angst in this boy. Like, you could save freaking humanity. What's in it for me? What do you mean, what's in it for you, you little shit? <laughs> the, the survival of our race. Um, there is some interesting kind of character creation. Um, Don Bluth has, uh, is a very unique, uh, designer of characters, even with the rats of Nim for the secret of Nim, the rats look different from each other. If you look at like the main three rat or rain four rats that you see in the movie, the rain four rats. Um, they all have different personalities. The aliens too. All the aliens in this all have distinct personalities i love the kangaroo design and so improbable but it it's kind cool. of works it's yeah. very weird uh i love what uh this this uh prissy sort of no prissy's not the correct word this hmm, spastic not spastic what would you say oh you're talking about uh preed 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 is like it's a, it's nathan it's a, lane as an alien it's a proud race uh, clearly like yeah. like we are clearly superior. It doesn't matter. Uh, he does such a great slimy job with this character. But the animation on him was the one I was most interested in watching because it was the most coherent, the most expressive, the most motion-filled. Most thought out. Yeah, you could tell that the head animator on it really had a good idea of what character he was feeling out here in a way that, unfortunately, the human characters just do not possess. It's... It's really flat and it's really stiff. Yeah, some pros and cons for this movie. Uh, one, one pro is that there is some amazing designs for this movie, uh, like we were saying with the aliens. One con is you could tell to kind of help save some time, they would like rotoscope a little bit, um, or they would like record people running and then animate over that. And I think. I've it looks seen, so stiff, and I yeah. know humans don't move that slow, but there are scenes when it's supposed to be like a chase action scene, and they have to like go around a corner, and it takes them like five minutes, and I'm wondering, that was a thing for a while, let's just trace over people, but the beauty of animation is that you can skip a few frames and make them go whatever speed you want them to, and it looks fine because it's animated. It's like, in the movie, I know we, we talk about this movie a lot, Klaus, in the movie Klaus, you have so much more fluidity in just the simple act of him talking to a child and the child dropping the snowball versus them actually like in a fight scene with you know two aliens it's not there's there's a level there's a different level of uh care i mean like it's not it's not about yeah i think it's about starting and stopping in animation you can stop a character and move just one eyebrow and convey such emotion and expression just to a to a stop a sudden lack of movement and then just one huh and it's like that's perfect there are so many scenes of like talking in between the characters that could benefit from that but it looks like they were just 
always moving because they were always tracing over an actual actor moving around who would never actually stand for completely still because that would look weird. That's also kind of a Don Bluth trait a little bit, but I will say he is more emotion filled, I guess he, he a little bit. Um, but I would say humans in a Don Bluth movie. Um, and again, I think it's because it's a time saving technique that he has. Um, not all of hashtag not all Don Bluth movies, not all of Don Bluth's movies are like that. But like Troll in Central Park, they have that weird the kind human of characters have this heaviness. Oh, uh, what's the Rankin and Bass, the Lord of the Rings have that weird kind of like stilted yes. like puppetry movement. Like, yeah, you got it. Ray, Ray. It's weird. Like I get it. I get why it's like that. But at the same time, it's not like the most visually appealing style it's, of animation. It's not. And it, it's, again, it's a, it's probably because it's a time saver. Beyond that, there's a lot of expressions. The facial expressions are really well done. The characters are well designed. They look distinct from each other. Um, to a point, there's there are some similarities between a couple of the older males um, humans. Yeah, boy, it did. Okay, I was wondering if it was just oh, me or oh, did no. they all for, look the same? For the longest time, I I had a hard time figuring out which male was ma- which was which. So, or I, that these two characters were separate and then weren't separate and everything like that. So, um, but the integration between the three D and the two D actually was well done for the year two thousand. If you look at the the fact that a this is the year two thousand in the year two thousand, um, in the year two thousand, the three D technology wasn't that far advanced. You had Toy Story, possibly Bugs Life at that point for Pixar side of things. Shrek was either either about to come out or had come out. So that's about the the advancement of three D technology in in cinema. But whenever you have like you have deep canvas at this point because um, uh, Tarzan had come out, you had other studios working with 3D technology, but it wasn't that well known. So the fact that you could create some really kind of interesting things with it, uh, a couple different ship designs uh, and uh, these giant ice crystals the at the ice end of the fields. movie, oh, that was really neat. Great weight with the ice fields. Like there's tension in that scene. It's wonderfully built up, these things just constantly crashing into each other and the reflections of the ships everywhere. Like, there were a couple issues with pacing in the movie, but overall I felt like they had the right idea about where they were supposed to go and when things were supposed to happen. They could have trimmed the fat on a couple of things, but... They, like, they could have stretched some things out. And again, I think this is because it was the early 2000s or with how they were trying to make this movie. Um, so... Uh, unfortunately, I gotta say, a big con is the whitewashing of the main female character. Yes, yeah, so I didn't strange. realize that until uh, until watching it this time. I was like, oh, yeah. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I like Drew Barrymore. I actually think she's a, a pretty good actress. But the cool thing about the Earth people that we see them—it's only been 15 years since Earth was destroyed. Earth is the citizens of Earth. Earth people are still diverse. Earthicans. Earthicans are still completely diverse. They're still, again, they, they don't matter because the countries aren't there anymore. Unless but you're a dude, because then it's pretty much white, white dudes. dudes. But we have people of Asian descent, and we have people of Hispanic descent. You can see them in when you get to the Earth colonies, all the different types of characters there. And you're like, this is great. This is awesome. I, I get that their Earth is still here and still fighting. It's not just a bunch of white people who made it off the planet, which is 
re- reassuring, but also, yes, it's a young white boy who has the power to save humanity for some reason. Yeah, but um, actually, you bring up a, you actually bring up a really good point with it, and this is kind of a negative point, but it also might be a positive point. Um, yeah, it, it is a bunch of white dudes because you've got the the two main white dudes, the captain uh, Corso, and then Kale, and then you also have the mayor of the Drifter colony that they go to is also a white dude. Um, and then one of the people that helps them oh, is a white dude. Oh, I didn't even see the mayor. I thought it was a real estate guy. It wasn't. That was technically his character is the mayor. Oh, well, he um, was there for a, a second. Yeah, a second. Uh, but And then one of the guys that helps them with the ship at one point is a white dude. And then the when he's on the ship trying to get like around the line or whatever, those two guys were white guys. But that's the really weird thing is, is if it's a dude, it's a white dude. But if it's not, it's could be in, or if it's a older, older than twenty dude, it's a white dude. If it's not, it could be anything. Because if it's children, it could be a white male who looked a lot like a young Kale, <laughs> or it could be you know African American because there was the the um, brother and sister, yeah. which I thought was kind of a cool little. Um, it was fun, totally shoehorned in, but I like yeah. the idea of it, like the concept that. What do you mean a field of grass? I've never even known that. I wasn't even alive during that. But just the idea that our dad played soccer and all we have is this picture of him. But one day I'd love to play soccer again. That like that's that's great. That's great human building. Yeah, it it shows that there's a reason why people want to not they they want to have something more. There's got to be something more than this provincial life. <laughs> um, but and then uh, there's a lot. So yeah, that that is a really big pro it, was built with it is a con diversity. that you have your main actress be drew barrymore and then she is a distinctly asian uh Woman character with an asian name and an asian Akima. design yeah it's yeah it's there you see guys it's not just us and ScarJo. people have been doing this for years oh they've been doing that shit for years forever we've been doing this um i mean don't get me wrong akima is a great character but you have Ming Wan Nin who could have easily have played that character. If we're talking about two thousands, Lucy Liu. Lucy, fucking yeah, Lucy Liu. <laughs> Lucy, uh, Lucy Liu would have acted the shit out of that role. I love Lucy Liu. The voice acting was all really good, and yeah. I'm not really sure how Bill Pullman managed to pull it off because Bill Pullman, I best know him for Independence Day, and he's like the nicest, greatest president ever. And I have no idea how he pulled off. So we have not said anything the about doing. The character that he did. Yeah. So uh, his character can be gruff at times and everything like that. So I think we can jump into their sponsor dome. Uh, do you want to do the normal sponsor first, and then we'll do our um, other sponsor, or do you want to do the I'll other do sponsor the, first? I will do the challenger because I'm excited to talk about this one. Okay. Um. So as usual, our our big main sponsor is Audible, uh, but I would like to, uh, for the Sponsor Dome, bring in a challenger, a book that you can't read yet because it hasn't come out yet. But if you are looking for a sci-fi post-apocalyptic book to read uh, in this quarantine, in this quarantine, and you want to pre-order some and uh, have one waiting for you this summer, might I recommend Axiom's End, uh, a novel by Lindsay Ellis. If you are at all familiar with the name Lindsay Ellis, it might be because you've seen her video essays on YouTube. We originally came across her when she was uh, the Nostalgia Chick, the counterpart to the Nostalgia Critic, uh, who also, by the way, shouted out Aaron's company, Ram, and the help they're working with the coronavirus, and that was pretty cool. Um, 
but Lindsay uh, kind of left that whole brand and started doing her own thing and since then has done these wonderful and thoughtful mini documentaries essentially on different films uh, all your classic Disney favorites she talks about uh, she's most of the reason I know about the Disney history at all uh, even things like Twilight or uh, or a 30 minute video about how to get your book published uh, you know, the long and short of it is that it's a really hard, stupid, stupid long process that takes 10 <laughs> years and in some ways is no way an indicator of the, the quality of your book, but the problem and hardships of the publishing world in general. But that's either here or there. It took her 10 years, but she finally has her book getting published and it's coming out uh, in July. Um, there are a few things about it that are worth noting. Um, but I think the most interesting one for me is that, uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm trying to concentrate, but my cat is on my lap and won't let me concentrate at all. Our cats have been very active while we were recording this. Very active. Um, I would be, uh, the reason I'm interested in it is that I really dig her style of, uh, of talking, of writing. She writes all of these essays, so it's good for her to, to- Sardonic without being too heavy about it. Yeah, that's a good way. Sardonic. I enjoy that. Um, and it's an alternate history book, which I really like doing. I've written two short stories for two alternate history anthologies. So the idea of changing a, an event in the world's timeline and how that changes the course of events going forward is really intriguing to me. Um, so if you are trying to like step into sci-fi or like sci-fi and want to support a, a female author, you can check out Axioms and coming out in July. I uh I personally I um I didn't dislike Lindsay Ellis, but I watched a few of her things um on her oh sorry when she was still the nostalgia chick and I just found her I'm like well why are you trying to do the same thing as as the nostalgia critic or Doug uh, Walker I was like why why are you just trying to do the own his own thing because that's how she was directed to do it exactly and um uh, I've since watched some of her stuff um at Liz's um suggestion uh and i actually find i i have thoroughly enjoyed her stuff ex since she has stepped out of that that shadow and i'm very glad that she has because she feels it feels like she's a lot more comfortable in this mm -hmm. and um and she in the way and and looking back at some of her previous work when she was still the nostalgia chick um it's still it's almost the same work it's just a better voice for it you know, uh, um, so I, I recommend Lindsay Ellis just in general, um, if you are looking for a new voice on YouTube too. So, uh, but today's show is brought to you by audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30 day trial membership is go to audibletrial.com slash married to the idea and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs, download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audibletrial.com slash married to the idea to get started today. Why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. Our uh, recommendation to you today is actually one that Liz uh, has read in the past. I get to recommend all books today. Yeah. Uh, we we, we kind of debated on a couple different books. Um, I'm not a sci-fi girl by trade. Like, Honestly, I'm not. I've tried it many times. I usually find sci-fi to be a little dry 
little technical, a little hard yeah. to get into in a, in a written word sense. Sometimes they get caught up in the details rather than the story. And the story is what I'm interested in. Character-driven plot is what I usually come for as opposed to... And sometimes fantasy does that too. True. Um, but I will admit that the um, uh, I'm I'm not a sci-fi person. I, I'm not as much of a sci-fi person as a lot of other people too. I've had a lot of uh, our more um, literature-esque friends recommend some more sci-fi books, and it's like I can only get into so many, so much sci-fi things. And Artemis Fowl is a great mix between sci-fi and fantasy. Uh, so. That, that's probably about as sci-fi as I get a lot of times. I enjoy technology in books, but it's got to be you, uh, a technology used to a point. So, um, But Liz has recommended Enchantress from the Stars by Sylvia Ingdahl. Um, it is a Newbery Honor book and a book since 76 selection. It's definitely good for young adults, so good for anyone, basically. Young adult just means <laughs> anyone can read it now. Um but, uh, Aaron, do you want to read the synopsis, or should I just give uh, my take on it? I will give a quick synopsis. I'll do the quick synopsis, and then you do your take on it. Sound good? Uh, Enchantress from the Stars is a science fiction classic. Three alien races meet on the small green world of Andresia. The Imperial Exploration Corps wants to claim the planet for its own, but the anthro- anthropological s- surface stands in the way. And when the young Elena makes contact with native Gorin, a love story exploring the very depths of human emotion unfolds. Uh, The reason I liked this book when I read it was that it mixed sci-fi and fantasy in a good way. It's obviously these alien races who want control of this, you know, analogous for Earth planet. But to the Earthlings' perspective, that's just fantasy. This what for Earth? This Earthlings' perspective. No, this this analogous. What? Analogy, analogous. <laughs> you learned a new word today. I've never heard that term. <laughs> that's a literary word I pulled out right there. Uh, it's something. It's a stand-in for Earth. This nice green planet with simple people on it, and to the people that live on the planet, these aren't alien beings, but rather. Uh, mythic creatures, dragons, angels, enchantresses, all fantasy because that's what they know. It's like the sun is a god to the Egyptians because they didn't know how to translate it in a scientific way. So easier to say the sun is a god that looks down at you without pity and mercy but also gives you life. Sort of that vibe. So, um, and if it's a sci-fi and Liz is recommending it, I would uh, take that. Most sci-fi books, I read the first three pages and have to look up so many words. I'm just like, done, done. Like, I don't care about the ship docking at port. That's, like, not interesting to me at all. Please get to the important part. <laughs> it's like, just get to the story. Like, and, and I can enjoy st- uh, sci-fi movies more than I can enjoy sci-fi books. Maybe it's because they're able to show a lot more of the actual science visually than they have to explain it. So I don't have to read six pages about it. You can just show me the thing. I'm like, oh, it's a time machine. Okay, I, I get it. Yeah. Like, I'll, I'll buy into this. You don't have to convince me. Where in a book, you have to do a lot more 
convincing and explaining for you to be like, oh yes, okay, I guess I'll take this. Uh, yeah, exactly. I'm 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 right there with you. I'm of the and Mary Shelley variety where. And he just made life appear in the creature. He just learned that life was made up of sparks, and there, he did it. <laughs> and there's some of the more drier science fiction movies, like Sunshine and uh, The Core or whatever, that I've watched that I'm sure, like, if it was a novel, I would not have enjoyed, that I did kind of enjoy as a movie. So, um, so yeah, uh, give that a check out, Enchantress from the Stars, again, by Sylvia Ingdahl, uh, narrated by Jennifer Aikida. Um, it is about 10 hours and nine minutes. Um, and, uh, which is good because you definitely had all that extra time with nothing else to do. Yeah. We, feel, we have never felt more confident in making audible recommendations than during quarantine. Exactly. You have tons of time. So, uh, if you, uh, do end up having that time and you want to get that free audio book, go to audibletrial.com slash married to the idea. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash or dot com slash married to the idea for your free audio book and even if you uh don't want to keep that full uh thing you can let it go and still keep that book after you are done so um moving on to uh some spoiler territory i guessed the double cross i did not guess the double double cross uh I didn't guess the double double cross. I still enjoy the double double cross. It's very good. Like it's very good for that character. I really like there's something so cutthroat. It's very walking dead to say, you know, humanity is dying. There's none left. And still somehow human beings are just the worst people ever. Especially dudes. It's always dudes. Uh so we have Corso. Voiced by Bill Pullman, who I only associate with nice things, and yet somehow, from like the first second he came on screen with his bad guy beard, I'm like, is he the bad guy? Like, I do not have Raider on this at all. I cannot see a twist coming to save my life. I do not have this ability. And yet, I knew, and I don't know how I knew, it's probably because, you know, every review I read of uh, Titan AE references that this is like very Star Wars to me. This was not very Star Wars, but what it did remind me heavily of was Treasure Planet, not just for the sci-fi setting, but also for the father-son dynamic and the double cross that happens in that movie, too. Like, I feel like of a father-son there's, dynamic, a young boy father-son has... dynamic throughout this whole thing. Like, it, obviously, with Kale and his father, and then abandonment issues, and then the only, like, father figure where he has, uh, I forget what his name is, but it's Tone Loke. Um, uh, the alien who turns blind, um, which was a weird thing to do. I think he just got old. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, so there was like that kind of father figure, but he still feels abandoned, and then he gets his new kind of father figure, who then still kind of abandons him. If a boy's got daddy issues, then the daddy that's going to take care of him is going to betray him. Spider Man taught us that. Treasure Island taught us that. This teaches us that. He had another treasure planet. I, I, I keep going back to it. They even have the same haircut. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it's a fun little twist. Um, not really unexpected, but the double-double twist doesn't make sense. What doesn't make sense is why the twist happened in the first place. Because he was so adamant about getting him on board and like, oh. And well, this... he was the only key. He had to stay alive and he had to stay on friendly terms. Yeah. I mean, like, it, it makes sense from, like, a storytelling standpoint, but not from a character standpoint. You know what I mean? Oh, agreed. Yeah. The, he's way too, like, nice and genuine. 
again, like the double cross only works if we had knowledge from the beginning that humanity might side with the dredge for their own personal gain. I can't see how any human being would side with the alien that destroyed their planet without threat of coercion. Like maybe, you know, they say it often, they can't be beat, they can't be beat. But if there was more sense of the dredge, like did this to other planets were yeah. like this more all universe bad guy that was always conquering and stealing like maybe then you could see that some people would turn and be like well yeah we have to be with them we can't fight against them they're too powerful yeah there's there's a definite difference between what uh, between an alien race who's very powerful and one that's kind of all powerful it kind of reminds me of uh ronin the conqueror from um guardians of the galaxy like where he's kind of not a heretic, but he's kind of um, I hate to say it like this, but like a, a religiously powerful fanatical. He's a f- fanatical. That's that's a much better term. Yeah, fanatical. Um, where he's gonna kill people no matter what. Yeah, and like either you're gonna side with him or you're gonna be killed by him. Yeah, his plan seems to be universe domination. The dredge don't seem to be interested at all in ruling the universe they seem to be mostly focused on humanity but they're never given any backstory or development to make you understand why they would really be concerned about what humanity could bring to the table with a titan like they're they're more afraid of the humans than they are like like oh well we're gonna destroy them and then maybe like like kind of divide and conquer kind of thing. Yeah, like, Kale figuring out how to break through their energy force fields is really cool. I thought they were going to explore on that. That's why the Dredge are afraid of humans, because they are, they can't be held by their yeah, traditional means. Yeah, their energy, which is said at one point. But human beings seem to be like the same carbon creatures that everyone else in the, every other alien is in the universe. Why couldn't any alien bust out of the Dredge's ship? And they don't seem to be holding any other aliens, so why do they have prisons if they're only there to kill humanity and humanity got destroyed 15 years ago? Like, all these little, all these little itty-bitty things that fail to give, like, the weight behind the plot I really want to see. Like, the entropy of the human race is interesting enough without having the big bad still there trying to kill you at every turn. And it's better that, you know, the idea of humanity turning on itself. Oh, I want to rule the new planet that we make, or I want to make it in my own image. I am God. You know, something <laughs> like that. Yeah, Planet Corso instead of Planet Bob. Planet Bob. I'm never calling it Planet Bob. It's so very good. Like, there is lots of fun little things. Like, I said it wasn't a comedy movie, but the first interaction between Akima and Preed, and then uh, the intelligent guard who's guarding the uh, slave traders. Yeah, like, that that scene was not given nearly enough weight because that is a really well-written scene. It's so fun. I think if I might talk about a more... uh, technical con than like a character or plot con in the story i think that the sound editing on this was wonky a lot it was it it suffered from um i don't know if it was rushed uh, but there was definitely some issues with sound editing i completely agree um because i couldn't hear some of the characters sometimes and i knew they were giving witty dialogue but like the background noises would be too loud and overpowering so I could hear the characters talking. Some some of the editing in this movie was a little wonky too. Um like I won't sit here and say that, you know, Secret of Nim was like the best edited movie of all time and it was a masterclass in it was editing. Tight. But it was a lot tighter than this. 
So I wonder why this is less than that kind of thing. If I may speak to the behind the scenes thing, I think it's because three different writers took a stab at this screenplay. Like, you know, even Joss Whedon. Joss Whedon worked on this at one point. That that was a weird thing. I mean. Like, it was weird. I mean, he's obviously done a lot. What's sci-fi movies that bomb and Joss Whedon being involved? It keeps keeps happening this way. Um, And you can tell, like, there's some wittiness in it. But at the same time, you, you look at this movie when... Don Bluth came onto the film. The film had already been in production for nine months, and all they really had were like some pre-production stills. And then Fox said, "Okay, we're only going to give you another eighty million to make this whole movie, essentially." So they were they were racing against a budget. I you can kind of tell that like the story is still pretty solid um, without all of that. But, like, you can tell that they had to cut corners on some things. Oh, I'm sorry. I got that completely wrong. They had spent $30 million. Sorry. 18 months the film was in pre-production with another director and producer, and they spent $30 million so far. Then when Don Bluth took over, they said, here's $55 million. Get it done in two years. So he was given a, a yeah, little inkling there's... of a budget to get this whole thing rushed out with the 3D art. I mean, that's why Treasure Planet bombed, because one... They sent it out to die, didn't give it any proper marketing, and it utilized expensive 3D technology that meant it had to do better to make up for the amazing visuals. It cost more. Yeah, and it's, it, again, you can kind of tell that it was not utilized. Some of the some of the stuff was not utilized to the best of its ability, and Again, like how we talked about, like maybe saving time with, like, quote unquote, rotoscoping the, um, the the people and stuff like that. And it's it's really weird that that's what they were doing, but it didn't look terrible, but it certainly looked stunted at some points. Yeah, and I, you know, now knowing that they had a pittance of a budget to work on <laughs> to be divvied out in twelve twelfths of a pittance each, and. <laughs> I I feel for them because you can tell that some things got a lot of they got a lot of love and attention and some things just did not get enough time like the script for one thing. I think I think the overall story had a lot of attention because like what each peak of the story is really cool. Like the earth blows up in the first 5 minutes. That's really cool. Um, the flow of Kale. events. Yeah, the flow of events and each like major event is really cool. When you get down into the more nitty gritty of things, it's a little. Some a, a lot of the the smaller finer details gets a little bit like um, bogged down. I get Kale leveraging him being humanity's last hope to like get with Akima, but Akima needed to Earth fangirl so much harder for me to believe why she would be interested in him at all yeah there was there was a little bit of um disinterest uh and then like they um didn't they just uh, didn't have a relationship so far as i could tell besides being two breeding humans uh, we i've seen worse relation i've seen worse (laughs) forced relationships there was some chemistry but i think there was um some non-chemistry as well I I get it. I, again, the, the elements were all there. The idea of uh, Akima being so interested in the concept of Earth as a planet and having all this, what Kale calls junk, but she calls like remnants of humanity. Like, 
I get it. I get why she's interested in it. But it kind of like comes out of nowhere at the end. And I, uh, uh, I it, disagree because they were they were starting to have a relationship before then, like when the dredge captures them and they had a, um, uh, they were they were stuck in the cell together. Yeah, yeah. There there was some there was there was some there is more development in this relationship than a lot of other relationships get. Like look at the Swan Princess. You know mm-hmm. what else is there? So they're both likable. Uh, yeah, and that's that's a big thing. Is they're both they're the, Kale's a little bland, Akima is a little bland, but they're not so bland that they're like milk toast. You know what I mean? Do we? Uh, is it finally time, Aaron? To talk about your favorite part of the movie? Is it finally time? <laughs> I do. Let's save that for the end. We'll talk about the the impact of this movie um, uh, a little bit more because the impact of this movie is actually kind of twofold. The studio, the Fox Animation Studio, um, we bought this DVD in, and my God, waves of nostalgia, just one after another after another. Just Independence Day 4, X-Men, it, all Independence the movies. Day, ID 4 is yeah. Independence Day. Yeah. It's not Independence Day 4. Sorry, I, I know it's not, clearly it's not the fourth of many Independence Days. <laughs> uh. I'm so, I, did I just walk right all over your joke? You did. I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. It was a joke. It was a joke. I'm so sorry. It's okay. I guess it wasn't a very good joke. It was It was, It was. was a better joke than I gave it credit you, for. You I'm so make, sorry. You can make it up to me with ice cream later. I, I promise I will. So Don um, Bluth makes Anastasia. Oh, no, I, I, no, I got it. This, this <laughs> damn DVD preview <laughs> where they're talking about full integrated, uh, fully uh, fleshed out 3D menus. and that's uh, what we all really needed oh with our DVDs God, was 3D was, interactive menus. It, this, this thing was just like... Like so, two thousands. It hurt. I want you to hit me as hard as you can from Fight Club, and it was like, oh my god. I'm just like, oh my. Because this was one of the first DVDs that we bought. It wasn't the first, but it was one of the first. It's and I remember older it was, DVDs. I, I remember it was one of the first that we bought with the um, surround sound too. I think the only menu I really truly love is the Lord of the Rings Extended Edition DVD menu because it still you, feels timeless. You and Lord of the Rings, it's, I swear to God. That's the first time I brought it up this episode. Yeah, this episode. You bring it up a lot. So Fox Animation Studios is formed. They make Anastasia. Anastasia does well. And then they make Bartok Magnificent, a spinoff. After only two feature films, the first being Anastasia. Correct. Bartok Magnificent was direct to video. It never got a theatrical release. Gotcha. When I say movies, they made three movies. Yes. Only two of them ever went out to theaters. And the second one was Titan AE, which did not recover its money and so closed the studio down. Yeah, this was this was the end of um of the Fox Animation Studios, which is really sad because it, I don't think it deserved that treatment. Uh, it, this is better than it had a bombing to be. Like this in Titan or this in Treasure Planet, neither of them deserved a bomb. Yeah, it's really weird to see two sci fi animated movies bomb this close to each other. 
And it could just be that the early 2000s wasn't interested in sci-fi epics the same way that pirate movies were always crash and burn affairs until Pirates of the Caribbean came out. Maybe that there was just the right time with the right technique would get it all together like, oh, here it is. But let us not forget that the the owner of uh, the Fox Animation Studios was Don Bluth. And from what we learned about Don Bluth, he would just open up a new animation studio after one of them closed. Like, that's all he did. He would open an animation but studio, this, he'd make one film, it would close, but, and then he would make another but one. But this one, this one was pretty monumental because this is the last feature film or animated film that Don Bluth has done. Because 19 years or now 20 years later, Don Bluth has not made another film. And I'm not exactly sure what he has done um, since then. I'm actually looking at it now. He, I knew that a couple years ago he was trying to get Dragon's Lair, his video game, turned into a feature-length movie. There was a campaign to get it launched, so I know yeah. that that was happening. It is announced that the Dragon Lair's movie is should come out in 2021. Okay. So we uh, might see it. And he's directed a, he's directed some things since then. Uh he's done a couple other video games, a uh, video sh- a few shorts. Actually, it's been video games and shorts pretty much. There's a couple Don Bluth projects that never came to fruition that I would have been interested in seeing. He had a treatment ready for East of the Sun and West of the Moon, which is a traditional fairy tale. Uh, I would have been really excited in seeing that. The stills, like the pr- production stills that he did for it, look gorgeous. I would have loved to see it. And Don Bluth is a master animator. And I think the early 2000s was unaware of just how bad things could get when you only let one studio make all the movies. This movie killed Don Bluth as a feature film director, which is a freaking travesty. It's not that bad, guys. Like, it's not. (laughs) I don't think the movie should have killed Don Bluth's career. I don't think the movie was anywhere near a bomb. I don't think this is a movie that deserves any hate. Like, like uh, some of the editing is a little wonky. Some of the plot is a little paced weird. But for the most part, the story is solid and the visuals are good. And I'm not really sure what was, what what, what it was that just made it not connect with audiences again early 2000s maybe just wasn't the time for animated sci-fi space operas and and that's that's that might be this might have been ahead of its time like if it was remade i don't want to see i wouldn't want to see it as a fully 3d i'd want to see it more as kind of like a 2d 3d hybrid still but kind of like um spider-man into the spider-verse kind of thing or some sort of 2d kind of uh or some something something still with 2D animation. It might have been ahead of its time. And Don Bluth is too good of a director and too good of an animator to have been quiet for so long. But I mean I can see why there's and there's so many of these people that we're noticing now, I mean, here, you know, twenty years later, that like he was not forced into the situation, but it's like basically, hey, we only have like fifty million dollars to get this movie out here you go like no that shit's not gonna that shit's not gonna fly or if it's gonna fly it's not gonna be very good oh yeah it's so it's so not good it's gonna kill the studio it's like later don blue stuff seems to suffer from lack of budget 
because the man can animate. It's not a fact of, oh, I just don't think he animates very well. Both Anastasia and Titan AE suffer from, you know, lack of continuity, lack of fluid motion, lack of emotion, but it has to do, I'm very certain at the end of the day, with money, not with ability or talent. I, I just don't understand why they don't. You have one of the best animated movies of all time with The Secret of Nim. And, you know, you have two incredible classics with way too many sequels um, each. The Land Before Time and um, uh, American Tale. Incredible family classics. All three directed and animated by Don Bluth. Let's not forget that this is hardly anything new. Brad Bird made The Iron Giant and no one fucking came out for it. So that's true. Just, this is just sad. Usually I remember when that came or either when it came out on VHS or when it came out, I actually got a little mini iron giant uh, figuring with it. So cool. I've got like 10 movies from my childhood that make me cry. No matter what, that's one of them. It's so good. So good. So let's not, let's not, you know, say that we're any smarter here 20 years later, but I do think that there are some, that it was a lot easier 20 years ago for movies that were good or fine to just get swept under the radar by other things. Yeah, we actually, um, we're going to be talking soon about another animated movie that didn't really get that much praise uh, when it came out, which doesn't make a lick of sense. So I think we're getting really nostalgic for 2D animation, though. I think we'll a little give bit. anything that is a hand-drawn line more love at this point. <laughs> so um, my favorite part of this movie, I enjoy the voice acting. I enjoy the visuals, and there's a lot to this. I fucking love the soundtrack. I uh, bought it, I think, from McKay's or something like that uh, years ago. And I still have it on my phone. I listened to it today uh, before we recorded. I was listening to it while we were setting up. It is a fan-freaking-tastic album. It is so 2000s, like, rock pop. It is... Yeah, if if you were a, you know, 10, 12, 13-year-old boy... By the time this movie came out, you are with Aaron in this fan group. Like, oh, this is so good. Ah, I love it. It's like, it's, uh, well, first off, it's got lit in it. So, I mean, that's, that's, uh, there you go. So, but it's like, it's just enough angst. It's not too heavy, but it's got enough angst to be like, yeah, I'm fighting the system, but not really. But enough. Uh, it's white boy. Anarchy. Yeah, it's that, middle suburbia anarchy. Exactly. If you're, if you're a fan of Green it, Day, if you it's <laughs> the pre it was the precursor to like Green Day and Red Hot Chili Peppers and shit like that for me. Yeah. And uh Trapped, like we talked about on our live stream recently. Yeah, it's such a boys soundtrack. It, yeah, I it one hundred percent. Yep. You are you are correct, sir. Like you have no idea how hard it is for me not to play some of these songs right now while we're recording. Not if we want to be monetized, we're not. Yeah, exactly. Like I don't want to. I don't want any legality issues. So, uh, but I I do recommend checking out the uh, the soundtrack. Um, I don't know where you can find it. It's probably not, not gonna be easy because like I've looked on Spotify to see if I can find the full album. You can't. 
And bad news, some of the songs from the movie aren't on the soundtrack at all, even though they were in the movie. Yeah, that's that's the weird thing. So, so just like, put a list together and then go search for them on their own time. <laughs> yeah, like maybe it might be on Amazon or um, Barnes & Noble or something like that. So I would recommend, I would honestly just recommend getting the CD and just get having it that way. So, uh, But they are so... It was funny because we we're sitting there and like we'd be watching the movie, and then all of a sudden the song would come on. I just look at Liz and I'd start singing along with it. Just rocking out so hard. Cause it's not quite paradise. Where can they follow us, Liz? They can follow us on Facebook at Married to the Idea, Patreon at Mary, uh, Patreon.com slash Married to the Idea. We're on SoundCloud, we're on iTunes. And once again, if you want to join the Steven Universe fan cast, keep Beach City quarantined. We live stream every Tuesday night at 5 o'clock. Thank you guys so much for listening. Hope you guys are safe out there. Hopefully this thing will be done soon or at least will be eased up sooner rather than later. So We decided to keep our sanity by retreating into old animated movies. Yes. We suggest you do the same. Yeah, actually, uh, with doing some research tonight, I'm like, I have another movie I'd like us to watch. Just just in general, not for an episode, just in general. So if you have any recommendations for us, we would love to hear them. Throw them in the comments below. You can also email us at marriagetheideareviews at gmail.com. Uh, but until next time, she's Elizabeth. He's been Aaron. And, and we're, we're married, married to, to the, the idea. idea.